invite you to take your scriptures and turn to that Revelation 7 passage, if you would. There are two Palm Branch or two Palm Sunday scenes in Scripture. Uh, One is in the Gospels. Each of the four Gospels have one of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And all four of those obviously uh, describe the Palm Sunday that takes place on earth. And uh, those who participate in that one, they're looking forward uh, to the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. The one that we are going to focus on today, the second one in Scripture, is in the Revelation 7 passage that we read a little earlier. Uh, This is a palm branches scene that takes place not on earth but in heaven. And those who participate in this heavenly one, they're not looking forward to the cross and resurrection. They're looking backward to the cross and the resurrection because... We all know as believers that Jesus' death and resurrection is the basis for everything in our Christian life. Um, The one on earth pictures Jesus sitting on a donkey. Uh, The Palm Sunday service in heaven pictures Jesus sitting on a throne. Both of them, despite their differences, have the same purpose, and that is to declare that Jesus Christ is the true king. He is the king of the universe. He is the king of Israel. And he is the king of our lives. Uh, Throughout scriptures, especially in biblical times around the life of Jesus, palm branches branches, um, were uh, symbols of victory or conquest. They really were trumpeting the conquering hero that was riding into town um, after a great victory. Uh, Coins were minted with palm branches on the back of them that were still in current use in Jesus' day that recognized the Maccabeans and the revolt against the uh, Seleucids and the victory about 175 or 80 years before Jesus. So on John 12, when the palm branches are mentioned in his gospel, uh, people are laying them down in front of Jesus because they're saying that he is the rightful king. They're saying that he's the hero that we're looking for. They cry Hosanna because they want him to bring salvation Uh, deliverance to them. Their their salvation, the one they had in mind, not so much spiritual, but a physical one. They they laid branches in front of Jesus because they thought that he would be the military hero they were looking for, the one that would ride in, really not on a donkey, but more on a stallion, on a horse, because they were looking for him to be the kind of Messiah, the kind of king that would uh, wipe out and uh, conquer the Romans. But they didn't know what kind of king he would be. The opposite of that in Revelation 7 is that those who lay their palm branches, have them in their hands and are worshiping the Lamb in heaven, they know exactly what kind of king Jesus would be. They had no misgivings about whether he would be a military hero or not um, because these are people that have palm branches in their hand that during the seven-year tribulation, have become saved. They've actually become followers of Jesus. And the scripture indicates that in the last half of that seven-year period in the great tribulation, they have actually given their lives, many of them, to be martyrs and witnesses to Jesus. And they know full well what kind of king he was. And they know because as followers of the king and of the lamb, they too have shed their blood. And they understand that the victory that Jesus offers as the king 
And therefore, while they lay their, why they lay their branches down before him is not because it's a military victory. Oh, no, it's against the greatest enemies that we have, our greatest foe, and that is sin and hell and death. And so they know exactly what kind of king Jesus is. He's a suffering king. He's a king that died in our place. He did not kill others. He himself was killed. And they know that because they too in following him have experienced it. You know, for all of us, as we consider Palm Sunday, it's one thing, isn't it? It's one thing to follow King Jesus without a cross. And that's what those on earth thought as they laid their palm branches before him, that he would alleviate all the suffering But it's quite another thing, isn't it? Even in our day, fast forward to the 21st century, to follow Jesus on Palm Sunday as king, to lay your palm branch before him, to decide to allow him to rule your life when it does include a cross. I wish we had a virtual palm branch that I could give from my hand to yours and you would accept it today, that you would be confronted with that palm branch as you looked at it to be able to personally choose to what you think about and what you believe about what it means for Jesus to be king and particularly what it means for him to be king in your life. And I I think in order for you to make that choice, perhaps afresh and anew or even for the first time in your life, like these tribulation saints, you need to be confronted with the reality of who King Jesus really is. And so today in this passage, I want to unpack for you so you can make an informed choice of what kind of king Jesus is so that when you lay your palm branches in front of him, uh, you'll know exactly what you're getting into. Can I say it that way? First of all, let me just unpack them. There's three things, and they're all in our text in Revelation 7. The first one is really in the first verse and almost all throughout the verse, and that is Jesus is a sovereign king. This text that we're reading in Revelation 7, 9 through 12, really is the ending of a text that begins in verse chapter 5 of Revelation. It's the throne room scene. It's the seventh seal of seven seals. Um, God takes his uh, revelator, John, and brings him to the throne scene in heaven. In chapter 5, in the first two verses, and everyone is upset because there is no one to open all of these seals. They've all been sealed uh, like first century documents would have been, and you had to be the person, the right person that it was written to, and they couldn't find anyone who was worthy until they come to the Lamb of God, Jesus. He's the only one who's worthy, and he opens the seals. And so what you find is at the beginning of chapter 7, there's a throne scene. At the end of chapter 7, there's a throne scene, and what we find in that throne scene is God and the Lamb are on the throne. Now, now, why is that important, you might ask, Pastor Walker? Well, because between chapter 5 throne scene and chapter 7 throne scene that we're looking at is chapter 6. In chapter 6, those seals are broken because the Lamb opens them, and they are filled with this content, a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, a pale horse, and unleashed on the earth becomes these things, war, no peace, Famine, pestilence, and death. You see, in the midst of a great tribulation, we need a great truth about a great triumph. See, when things on earth, all you can see on earth is war, we need to get another perspective from what's going on in heaven. See, in heaven there's worship, on earth there's war. See, when there's chaos, there's control. 
And we have to put these together because from an earthly standpoint, even for us right now in the COVID-19 crisis that we face, this is certainly not the great tribulation, but it is a great tribulation for a lot of people. And if you look around, and that's all you do is look around, that is, um, it won't seem that God is on the throne at all. In fact, things look more out of control than in control. And in the first century, as, the, uh, as they read this text, and we're looking forward to the day that Jesus would come, but those who would be in the tribulation, listen, if you're in the tribulation period, the seven-year period, which this describes in the future, see, if all you do is look around, you're going to be disheartened because you're going to believe that Satan is on the throne and not God. In fact, it's interesting in our text and throughout the, book, uh, the books of the Bible, the word throne is used 62 times in the New Testament. 47 of those 62 times are in the book of Revelation. That's why throne and God's sovereignty is a major theme. 36 out of those 47 times in Revelation pictures God on his throne. You know how many times it pictures Satan on a throne? One time. In chapter 2 and verse 13, it talks about the church in Pergamos where Antipas, God's faithful witness, was martyred. But that was where Satan's throne was. And then it goes on to say, well, that's where he dwells. In other words, when you have a throne scene, what you're depicting is God's presence is powerfully there. And in Pergamos, Satan's throne was there. His presence was really felt. And it was obviously demonstrated when Antipas was killed, God's faithful martyr. But in heaven, the throne of God, it says in verse 15 of our text, it's where God dwells. And this is where God's presence is. And the throne, representing God's presence and God's sovereignty, is a key factor seven times. Seven times it's mentioned in our text. Three times it says, before the throne. Twice it talks about God sitting on the throne. One time it talks about people around the throne. And the last part of the text says Jesus is in the midst of the throne. And what John wants them to see as they go through the great tribulation and wants us to see as we go through our kind of tribulation that we face right now is this, that God is sovereign. That's the kind of king Jesus is. He is a sovereign king and he is on his throne. And as they looked around, it may not have looked like it. And when you and I look around right now in our lives, it may not look like Jesus is on the throne and you might be at home, and you're listening, and you're saying this, Pastor Walker, you know, I just got cut back to, you know, three days a week in my job. Or I'm working two days a week, and I only have so many hours. Can I tell you this? He's still on the throne. Pastor Walker, you don't know, it's worse than that for me. I just got laid off, and I don't have any income. Nothing coming in right now. And people in Ecuador and certain places perhaps even worse. But can I tell you this? He's still on the throne. People I know, friends of mine, loved ones, getting tested for COVID-19. Not sure what the results are. And you'd be honest today. A lot of fear, worry, anxiety, deep concern. He's still on the throne. I've heard stories, and perhaps you have too, about friends, loved ones that are dying or have died, and there hasn't been even a lot, their people haven't even been able to be there for the funeral or in the hospital or to encourage them or comfort them. And people are at home by themselves and they're grieving. I've heard those stories, and as difficult and tragic as they are, and no one wants to certainly minimize any of those things, we can take this encouragement 
God is on the throne. Jesus is a sovereign king. So much so that in between those two throne sovereign passages in 5 and 7 of Revelation, in chapter 6 and verse 11, here's what the passage reads. This is how sovereign Jesus is. It says, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until, see this? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. See, here's the thing about God's sovereignty. Even in the worst times, even when people are being persecuted, even when people are being martyred, see, God is in control of it all. He knows the exact number. He knows the exact name of every person who's going through every struggle. And here's what he says. I've got it under control. I've got it under control, he says. And the passage, the passage shouts to us that Jesus is a sovereign king, that he is still on his throne despite what everything around us would indicate. But perhaps another question we should ask is, is he on your throne? See, when he's on your throne... Despite all the things going on, and we're not neglecting them, we're not minimalizing them, we're not trying to downplay them, they are severe, like they were here. They are very severe in our lives. But when you believe, not just theoretically, but functionally, and you practice in your life that Jesus is a sovereign king, in verse 12, it says, All of those who are around the throne see God sitting on the throne, knowing that he is in control. Here's the response. They cannot help but break out in worship to the extent where seven's a big number in Revelation. They give seven descriptions of blessing and praise and honor and glory, and he lists them in verse 12. Seven of them. And in the original language, you may not be able to see it in the text, but each one of those praises to God is intensified by a definite article. And that means this, that it's the glory, the wisdom, the blessing, the honor, the might, the power. See, it's the, you know why? Because he wants you to know that God is still sovereign. He's still wise. His plan is still going to be accomplished. And all God, God is not shocked by this. He's not surprised by this. And he wants you to know that you don't, you can trust him and you can worship him. See, I am convinced and I hope that you become as well, that one of the most important things that we need as Christians during this time is to see God on his throne. And we need to put God on our throne. We need to acknowledge that he is in control, that he is sovereign, and we are not. And you say, Pastor Walker, how do you do that? You worship him. You ascribe glory to him and power and wisdom. God, you know more than me. You're powerful, more powerful. You're, you're, you're smarter, you're wiser, you're more loving, you're more kind. You're more, you can handle all of this. I don't know all your purses, purse, purposes, God, but I still worship you. You see, Job, in the greatest loss of his life, he, he tore his clothes, he put ashes over his head, and he got angry at God. No, he, got, he, he yelled at God. No, it says, out of his mouth came these words, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. You see, we cannot afford just to see life from our quarantined room, but from the throne room. We cannot afford just to see our situation from where we sit in our home, We need to see it from where God sits on his throne.
So as we go through great tribulation, obviously not to the measure or degree in Revelation 7, but great tribulation nevertheless to us, what we need to see is not just the reports and not just what people are saying and not how bad it is, but how sovereign our God is and how he is in control and worship him and give him praise for all that he is doing. So what kind of king is it that Jesus is that you would want to follow with your whole life? Well, he is a sovereign king, but that's not all. Number two, Jesus is a savior king. What do all these elders and four living creatures, what are they crying out? What are they shouting? What are some of the things that they are saying as they worship him? Well, here's what they say. See in verse 10, salvation, which means deliverance, rescue. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's spiritual. Whichever form it takes, salvation belongs to our God. Listen, And he puts them together because God's sovereignty flows into his salvation. This kind of savior God, he belongs, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. You see, Jesus is the only one worthy enough to open the seals because he was the only one worthy enough to be the lamb of God who died on the cross for our sins. He is the only one who can save us eternally, yes. But in any other circumstance, in any other situation, God is the only one, ultimately, who can deliver us. In chapter 7 and verse 3, in preparation for the tribulation that's coming from the seals, the verse says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. God has the ability to save us From tribulation. And the rapture comes, God would save us from the seven years of tribulation. He has the ability. What kind of savior king is he? He can save us from tribulation. And for some of us, he will. He'll protect us and preserve us such a way that we'll never get the coronavirus. Or many will get it and they'll not be harmed too greatly by it. God has the ability to save us from tribulation. And he does that. But in this text, in chapter 7, he also has the ability, child of God, to save us in tribulation. He can do both. He can preserve us and protect us no matter what the kind of danger is. He protected the Israelites when all the Egyptians were being experiencing the ten plagues. The Israelites were not. But the Bible goes on to say, He can not only save us like that, but the way that he normally saves us is in those difficulties. The key word, really, in my estimation, the book of Revelation is the word lamb. It's used 27 times in the book of Revelation, far more than any other book in the entire Bible. And not only is lamb there to show that Jesus was the lamb of God who saved us from our sins, that is obviously the truth. But is there to indicate, and for our own benefit as we walk through times like this, what kind of Savior King he is. It is not only the power of our victory when they wash their robes white in his blood, but it is the pattern of our victory. In the early stages of this heavenly vision before the throne, John saw a lion and a lamb. But through the rest of of the pages of Revelation, only the Lamb is seen because the pattern of victory is not 
in Jesus' case, by powering over his enemies, but by powering under his enemies. And so when it comes to victory in the tribulation period, the way that we conquer, the way that we have victory, is not by powering over those who persecute us, but powering under them and witnessing to them and serving and ministering in that way. And so we say, it's the lamb, not the lion. It's the cross, then the crown. It's the great tribulation, then the great triumph. It's first the donkey and then the throne. And that's why in our text, for these tribulation saints, it says that they wear white robes. There are all kinds of things throughout the book of Revelation that are white, and for good reason. There are white stones that are given out, uh, revelations of Jesus and God with white hair, to describe his wisdom, there are white horses that are ridden, people wearing white clothes. In our text, three times, once in verse 9, 13, and 14, it, it makes emphatically clear that these people who are before the throne uh, and coming out of the great tribulation are wearing white robes. And the reason is, is because it's depicting their victory. Listen to this text, Revelation 3, 4, and 5. These ones have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Why are they worthy? Why do they get to wear the white robes? Here's why. The one who conquers will be clothed with me in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. See, when you get the white robe in heaven, it means you conquered, not conquered by powering over. No, by enduring and persevering in the suffering, by staying faithful to Jesus, no matter how difficult times got. And for them, it got pretty difficult. See, Jesus, he is the Savior King. And he uses his sovereign power to help us to have the ability to stay true to him and faithful him in what I call this in and out process. He helps us in the tribulation period so that he can bring us out of the tribulation period. And you can see in the text in verse number 15, he says, these are the ones coming out. I'm sorry, verse 14, out of the great tribulation. So in the great tribulation, he kept them strong and they were faithful And he brought them out of the tribulation period. And he brings them to his throne and robes in the white because they had conquered. See, the Apostle Paul, he knew that principle. He knew that pattern of what victory looked like. And he tells us in the most difficult times in his own personal life, as he tells us a little bio story of all the tribulations he went through in Romans 8. And he tells us these comforting words. Here's the great truth in the middle of great tribulation that we already have a great triumph and it's in a love that God has given us in Christ in which nothing can separate us from. And here's what he says. But that great triumph does not just keep us from tribulation. It keeps us in tribulation. And he says these words for I'm, he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities. But right before that, listen, he mentions all these things, famine, nakedness, sword. In verse 37 of Romans 8, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Same word used in Revelation 3, 4, and 5. We are victorious in them, not around them, not skirting the issues, but in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. So what kind of king is King Jesus? He is a savior king. 
Can I tell you this? He doesn't just save you from tribulation and wrath someday so that you don't go to hell. He does that. Praise his name. But he saves us and delivers us now in all of our troubles and tribulations in Corona. He can deliver us and he may physically, I don't know if he will, but ultimately he will. He will deliver us from our tribulations and in our tribulations as we stay committed to him and devoted to him and keep him as number one in our lives. So on Palm Sunday, as we make the choice with our own virtual personal palm branches and lay them down in front of King Jesus, we choose to follow him because we believe and we live out the reality of what kind of king is. And he is a sovereign king and he is a savior king. And thirdly and lastly, and perhaps to us at least at this time in life, most importantly is he's our shepherd king. The Bible says, therefore, you see it in verse 15? Therefore, based on the fact, what? That they were faithful to him throughout the great tribulation until God allowed them to be martyred. Right? And he brought them out of the tribulation period. It was absolutely through, actually through their death. Therefore, what? They are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them. See, palm branches were associated with the Feast of Booths. The Jewish people call it Sukkot. And it was a feast where it commemorated Jewish, uh, a Jewish holiday where it remembered how God brought them out of Egyptian bondage brought them out of the plagues, the plagues of Egypt and into the wilderness and how God provided with them for them. And here's what he says. And see, this is what God has done. He has brought them on their Jesus journey. And their Jesus journey in the tribulation period has gone through much suffering and persecution and for some of them even death. And he's brought them, and now he's brought them to the final resting place, we would say in Hebrew vernacular, the promised land. And all the way, here's what he's done. It says, he's now brought them through his throne. They'll be before him day and night. And he is going to shelter them. And it's the word tabernacle. And they used to build booths to remember how God protected them and provided for them. All the way through the dangers that took place in the wilderness journey. And here's what he says. See, I'm the kind of shepherd king in your life. And I'm going to shelter you. And I'm going to protect you for all eternity, he says. You're going to be so close to God, you're going to be before his throne. Up until now, it's been the elders and the living creatures and the angels that were before the throne of God. It's almost like picture concentric circles. Within heaven, there's the throne of God in the center circle. And then around him are the elders. And around them, the living creatures. And then the angels. And then the people from the nations. And see, you know what God says? I'm going to bring those who have been faithful to me, who have conquered, who have yielded their lives and devoted, been devoted to me through the worst of times. I'm bringing them right into my presence. They've had to fight where Satan's throne is in his presence, and now I bring them to my throne in my presence. And God says, and that's where they're always going to be because I'm going to shelter them with my presence. And, and one of the results of that, can you look at them? They're fantastic, verse 16. They shall hunger no more. Manna. He provided manna all the way through the journey, and God says, I've got, in fact, one of the churches, they were given manna as a heavenly result of conquering Neither shall there be thirst anymore. God says eternal water out of the rock. Isn't it amazing? In Revelation, 20, in Revelation 22 and verse 1, 
It says that out of the throne of God throws the river of water, living water, that brings the water of life. Listen, before this throne, the eternal river will flow, and they'll have their thirst assuaged for eternity in Jesus Christ. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. They won't have to worry anymore about all the heat in the wilderness and how desperately hot it gets and all the problems that cause because they're going to have all the food that they need for life. They're going to have all the water they need and they're going to be protected by the shelter of God's presence from the sun. And it says, and the reason for this, the reason for this, look at it, is for the lamb is in the midst of the throne. What kind of king is this lamb that's in the middle of the throne? Well, he's going to guide them to springs of living water. Why? Because verse 6, 17 says he will be their shepherd. See, God, in the midst of your tribulation, right here, right now, he is sovereign. Yes, he is a powerful God, but he is also right here up close, and he's a very personal God. He's not just orchestrating history and the seals that are broken in the tribulation. No, he cares intimately about individuals who are going through difficult times because they're faithful to him. Can I tell you, God is not just removed, sitting on a throne off in the clouds in the universe, invisible. Or no, he's, that's, he, he is sovereign, but he's a shepherd. He's out there and he's in here. He's up close He is not only transcendent, he is imminent. And that's the kind of king that you and I have if we are believers and we follow him. The only other time this last promise in verse 17 is given, which reads, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, is Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. The new city of God, the new Jerusalem, descends from heaven. A new heaven and earth are made. And God says, he will wipe away, verse 4, every tear from their eyes. And then he continues with the no more statements. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This little phrase... It's quoted in both of these verses that he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's actually a quotation from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 25 and verse 8. Can I read the phrase that the revelator doesn't quote that leads up to that promise? Isaiah 25, 8 reads, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all their faces. I I like the little subtle difference in those two quotes. One says, every tear from their eyes. The other one says, tears from all the faces. It means every single tear of every single person, he will wipe it away. Because he's a shepherd king. So does he care? Yes. He cares about Kino's family and your family. He cares about Carolyn first in the hospital. He cares about you as you're waiting for your test results to come back and you're not sure what future, if any, you may have. He cares about the people that I've talked to who've lost loved ones and are sitting home by themselves and all they can do is just this, cry. 
No, to say the statement right now in our culture, there's no more of it, (laughs) is not a good statement. I mean, right now, people are saying, oh, I'm sorry, there are no more paper towels. There are no more masks. Unfortunately, no more toilet paper, no more jobs, and for some people, no more income. And to say no more right now is not attributed as being something good, but oh, in that day. In fact, Isaiah 25, in the context, all these paragraphs are preceded with this little phrase, in that day. Not now, but in that day, he says, he's going to wipe away every tear. How do we get through this day? Pastor Walker, how do I make it through this day as a believer? Well, you have to understand that I choose to lay my palm branches down before him. I choose to live out the pattern of the Lamb of God and King Jesus that there is suffering at times before the throne, before the throne uh, experience. There is difficulty and danger and even disease. But God, the God we serve, he has the ability, because he's the sovereign God, he can... And the Savior God, he can help us during those times. And let me tell you, he can help us in a very personal, intimate, loving way. And he has plans that all of it will be taken care of. And there will be a day, in that day, where there won't be any more crying, no more mourning, no more funerals, no more suffering, no more pain, no more wondering what happens to loved ones in that day. And the reason we can make it through this day is because we have the hope of that day. And if you are watching today and you do not have the hope of that day, if you don't have that hope, this day is going to be far worse. It's going to be so much more difficult to work through because this is it. But it doesn't have to be because in Jesus, if he is your king, see, you can have that day to look forward to. When all the things that we go through right here in this world will be passing away and all the old things will be gone and the new will come. See, that can be yours as well if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you submit to his lordship. If you say King Jesus I may not know all of your purposes and I don't know why you're doing all that you're doing but I know that you have in control of all the details. The what, the where, the when all of it. And I worship you anyways no matter what happens, no matter what's going on around me, I bow the knee to you now and I declare that you are king. Yes, king of the universe but king of my life. Hold on to him. You can, hold on to King Jesus because he's returning and he's going to make everything right. And no more, that statement will take on a completely different meaning in your life. If you are a Christian here, would you do it again, afresh, anew today? Would you take your palm branch even now right there in your living room? Just go through the motions and say, Jesus, I lay my palm branch before you. I know what kind of king you are. I know what the pattern means. And I know that it may not exclude from me suffering and difficulty and perhaps worse. But I love you and I follow you and I worship you and I give you glory. Because you are my king. Please, afresh and anew, sit on the throne of my heart and life. Let's close in prayer. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, King of our lives. We hold on to you. We bow before you. We bow before your throne. And we declare, because we choose to, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that you are King.
king of our hearts, king of our lives, king of our circumstances and our situations. We are not in control. You are. And we submit to you gladly, cheerfully, lovingly from our hearts and desire to follow you, even through this, what we would call our tribulation of right now. Help us to be faithful to you. Grant us mercy that above all else, Jesus, we might be loyal to you and our allegiance might be obvious by the choices we make and the responses to the difficulties we face. And in all of it, may we worship you because you are that king. May we do that individually. We may do that that as a church. May we do it in such a way that makes much of you. Be glorified, King Jesus, in our lives as we make that choice today and every day as we look forward to that day. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.